0: When looking at school performance, there are often a lot of different criteria people will use to determine if a school is succeeding. Graduation rates, student achievement metrics, test scores, attendance. But what defines a failing school? And what's the prescription to fix it? There are several approaches states have been trying, from small and incremental changes, such as adjustments to curriculum, to sweeping overhauls, such as removing and replacing the entire leadership structure. This is Policy Outsider from the Rockefeller Institute of Government. I'm Alex Morse. Today, we have Rockefeller Institute's Director of Education Policy Studies, Brian Backstrom, to discuss his latest report on school turnaround efforts. And he gives us his take on what school districts should study up on to improve their schools. And you may be wondering where Kyle Adams is. He will be my first guest today to discuss what's next for Policy Outsider. Today, we begin with our first guest, Kyle Adams. Kyle, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Alex.
1: And obviously, uh, I'm usually the one introducing the guest here. But I'm going to be leaving the podcast, uh, moving on to a new position. So I'm leaving it in the very capable hands of Alex Morse, longtime podcast producer here at the Rockefeller Institute. He's been with us since episode one, behind the scenes, pushing the buttons and cutting the audio and making this whole thing come together the way it comes together. Moving forward, he's coming out from behind the mic to take over as podcast host, and I see only good things on the horizon. He's got a lot of ideas, a lot of vision, and a very supportive team here at the Rockefeller Institute that are thrilled to be bringing new research, uh, cutting-edge public policy analysis to... The public, to policymakers, to to try to make a difference
0: here. Thank you, Kyle, for those kind words. I want to just say that I'm grateful for all the times that we got to work together on these podcasts. It was a huge learning curve. We jumped right in. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so behind the scenes, we we just dove into this and learned as we went, and are still learning. Of course, we're uh, you know, ten episodes feels like a lot to us, but it's not a lot, and we're we're still learning with every episode and improving and making each episode better and better and we just love doing it. It's fun work, it's fun to bring these ideas to life um, in a new way because everyone here is so used to doing it on paper. So to be able to hear it, to hear the researchers speak, to speak more casually about their work and to mix in the field recordings especially we can get more into that, uh, it's been so much fun to do.
0: It's been really empowering. This is a moment that we can really communicate a lot of our work in a different way and all of our researchers, everyone that we've had on the podcast has been super excited to talk about their work. They reach out to us constantly about what can we talk about, what can we bring. And it's just a super exciting way to communicate public policy.
1: Yeah, and that was the idea right from the outset. We're always trying to make our findings more digestible, more accessible, reach new audiences or or reach our current audience in different ways. And the idea here is you may not have time to sit down and read a 40-page report, but you might have time to put a podcast on for a 20-minute commute and get the, the basics of this idea and then maybe be enticed to go read more. And I think it's been effective in that. We've, we've been getting pretty good feedback on this.
0: I want to talk about how the podcast started. When I,
1: when I started here uh, almost two years ago, that was on the docket from day one. The whole aim of a lot of the work that I did here was to be innovating and diversifying uh, the way we communicate our research findings, and podcasts are on the rise. It happened pretty quickly. We decided to just go for it. It can feel overwhelming when you're just starting out, but really the best thing is to just dive in, grab a couple mics, and start talking to people, and put it out there. The amazing thing about podcasting is how accessible it is for anyone to just start doing. And what's more important than nailing the audio levels right off the bat is, <laughs> is having content that people care about and that, that's interesting. And I think the kind of research that we do here, it's robust, it stands on its own. So we'll figure out the kinks along the way. What's key is that we're communicating important work.
0: The hard part is not the policy or the research, it's the audio levels.
1: Yes, the hard part <laughs> is the, the levels.
0: I want to bring up something that you said just a few minutes ago about bringing out the field recorder. For our listeners that aren't quite sure what that is, can you want to explain?
1: Yeah, so a lot of the podcast episodes we record quote-unquote in studio um, at the Rockefeller Institute but what's really been a lot of fun is being able to take the field recorder, portable recorder, outside of the institute and go meet the people who are affected by the policy, go follow our researchers as they're out doing their research. The two episodes where you really hear this are when we check in on the stories from Sullivan researchers. So that is our long-term, ongoing study of the opioid crisis in Sullivan County, New York, which is down uh, just about 90 miles north of New York City, but culturally, geographically, a totally different world. It's It's an extremely rural county, and they've been studying the opioid crisis through aggregate data analysis, which is the bread and butter of a place like this, but then mixing it up with interviews in the field where they're talking to the people on the front lines of this crisis who are dealing with it from every angle so it's kind of the usual suspects in law enforcement and county health things like that as well as just community activists you know the bartender that you happen to meet while you're out talking to other people but they have stories to share so it's been an incredible project and those episodes have been rich and powerful when you hear directly from people who are in addiction recovery, people who have lost loved ones to the epidemic. So it becomes so much more than just so and so many people died in 2017 versus 2014. Those numbers are important to form the backbone of everything, but the human stories really highlight why this work matters and why we do it.
0: You took the word right out of my mouth, powerful, on our latest episode, Yet I'm Still Here. It was just a sobering account. Highly recommended listening because it really stopped me in my tracks. That was one of my favorite episodes to work on.
1: Yeah, those voices grab you right from the start and don't let go through the whole episode. We didn't have to do any fancy footwork on that. The stories just keep you engaged. And it's difficult to sit there and listen to those stories. But I, I think that the meaning comes through. And I think this gets at the heart of why we do the research that we do. Is that when you don't know a lot about these problems, it's easy to look the other way. When you start to meet the people who are really affected, it's way harder to say, who cares?
0: Well, Kyle, thank you so much for joining me here today. I know our audience will be sad to see you go. We're all sad to see you go. And on a personal note, I'm so grateful for all the work that we've gotten to do together. You've been tremendous. You're someone I get to lean on and a wealth of knowledge.
1: Thank you. I look forward to everything uh, that comes out of the podcast and the Institute in the future. Uh, I'll be listening.
0: Next up, we have Brian Backstrom, Director of Education Policy Studies at the Rockefeller Institute to discuss his latest report on school turnaround efforts. On Policy Outsider, we have a returning guest, Brian Backstrom, Director of Education Policy at the Rockefeller Institute of Government. Brian was here on Episode 6, titled, Digging into Student Debt in New York, to discuss the issue of student debt and how it impacts the financial decisions of students and families. Be sure to check out that episode in our library on Anchor or your preferred streaming platform. On today's episode, Brian is here to discuss his most recent report titled, School Turnaround Efforts what's been tried, why those efforts failed, and what to do now. Brian looked at several different alternatives that states have tried in an attempt to fix failing schools and identified important characteristics that are necessary to improve schools.
2: Brian, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. To start off, what are failing schools? One of the things that we've noticed is that too many schools have very low student achievement levels, but even worse that... Many of these schools, and I would say most of these schools, have these low levels of achievement for years and years, um, sometimes even decades. In New York, for example, they label these schools persistently failing schools. No school should be failing persistently, and I think that's sort of got the nation's attention. Um, For the past 50 years, we've tried to improve failing schools, and unfortunately, most of those efforts just haven't worked we're still talking about it, we're still talking about failing schools, and we're still talking about students that need better schools available to them.
0: And I imagine that failing schools are different state by state?
2: Oh, without a doubt. They all have different characteristics. You could have low performance in a rural area because of a lack of resources. You could have a low performance in urban areas because of lack of opportunity. You could have low performance because of an entrenched bureaucracy that simply refuses to change. It's very interesting to look at the different causes, but that's one of the problems that we have is a lot of the school fix-it models that come out have a particular prescription and try to force everybody into the same formula when you really need to provide flexibility while requiring certain elements that we know to work.
0: So how bad is the problem? How many failing schools are there?
2: Oh, There's literally thousands of schools serving millions of students that are persistently failing by almost any reasonable definition you use. And that varies from state to state. But I think the problem we have is that a lot of the educational institutions that oversee these schools use so many different definitions of what success is and what failure is that it's really hard to get a finger on the number of how many students are really in desperate need of help. A lot of this is educational policy that's decided by the states and states take individual approaches to defining what constitutes a failing school. So. Trying to say, you know, there's 50 million kids in need of assistance is really a hard thing to do, or that there's 10,000 failing schools nationwide is very hard to do simply because of the lack of consistent definitions. What we do know is that there are many school children who are not getting the educational services they need under the current construction of public schools as we have them today.
0: Why are schools failing? Are there any noticeable trends? rural-urban divide, red state, blue state, race.
2: One of the things we see is that the most occurrence of low-performing schools are urban schools, are high-minority schools, and are almost always low-income schools. Consistently, these schools, for a variety of reasons, tend to post the lowest academic success rates of any of our public schools. I think we saw that in the philanthropic movement that concentrated efforts on urban schools. We see it in some approaches to state policy that always focuses on urban schools or low-income schools. And I think they're right to do that. Those are the schools where we have highest teacher turnover. Those are the schools where we have some of the most challenging discipline and school culture problems. Those are the places that often have the lowest school graduation rates. So of course, it should get our attention and I think any improvement to improve failing schools deservedly belong in urban centers first.
0: What did you find were some of the most typical approaches to failing school turnaround, and what were some of the typical reasons why these efforts failed?
2: Well, the biggest effort that we've seen over the past 50 years has been the Federal School Improvement Grant Program, or SIG program. And that's poured in uh, about well, more than $6 billion in school turnaround efforts just in the period of seven or eight years from about 2007 to 2014 when it stopped. That effort prescribed four different models that any state could use if it wanted to get this federal funding to help around failing schools. Um, you could close schools. You could restart them under uh, authority of a public charter school or charter management organization. You could take what's called the turnaround model, replace the leader and at least 50% of the staff, or you could fall into the bucket school transformation, which involves a changing of the leader and a couple other sort of minor changes, increased time on learning, um, some curricular changes. The problem is, is that left to those devices, about three quarters of individual schools that could qualify for this school improvement grant funding all chose the smallest level of reform. There wasn't a rush to say let's do the big bold reforms, the sort of monumental reforms that need to happen in these schools to achieve the long lasting and overhaul change that we needed.
0: Why do you think we need an overhaul of change and not incremental steps?
2: You really need to shake up the landscape if you want to achieve these changes. And quite frankly, a lot of the problems have stemmed from things that exist in the current structure. There was a great education reformer based in Minnesota. He was a former teacher union leader. um, And he had a comment that sort of reverberated throughout the education reform community ever since. And he said, you can't get the schools we need by trying to change the schools we have. I think that sort of captures it. It's like trying to fix an airplane while it's in flight. You just can't do that. And so sometimes you really do need to take an overhaul approach. We're not saying that this has to happen in every school, but when you look at a school that is deserving of the persistently failing label where kids aren't graduating, where they're not learning, where the failure on state assessments is really low and has been low for years, you really need to do something dramatic to change the course of that school. And part of the problem when you're funding incremental changes is you're talking about kids' lives here. And so if you're expecting change over the next 10 years, you've lost an entire school of kids. That child has gone from second grade to 12th grade and you haven't made the changes yet. I don't think that's right. I, I think there's a moral imperative to fix these schools and to fix them as fast as we can.
0: What are the different types of school takeovers, and what did New York opt for?
2: One of the things that grew out of the school improvement grant movement from the federal level was that a whole bunch of states sort of hopped on the bandwagon of taking over failing schools. And we saw legislation in you know, nearly three dozen states that allow the state to take over failing schools. Now, that sounds good. It sounds bold. But I think what we've seen when we looked at those states is that they all implement their reform strategies to a various degree, and some don't do anything with it. Some are allowed to take over only an individual school. Some can take over an entire district. Some can create a new district to take over schools. But a lot of them still have their reform models once they take over the schools to be largely the same sort of a a menu of options that range from minimal transformation around the edges to overhaul and allowing local flexibility, that tends to go for the less serious reforms. But one of the things that was very valuable coming out of this state takeover movement was the growth of two models that became the ones that got attention to replicate in your own state. We saw in Tennessee the creation of an achievement district that went statewide and, and took over all the failing schools, put them into one district controlled by the state to make reforms. The other model was the one that was implemented in Lawrence, Massachusetts, where the state said, this district is failing for so long and to such a degree, we need to put in someone ourselves to run the district. That's a receivership model. And they appointed one individual to come in and spearhead the reforms district-wide. So you can have targeted approach by the state. You can have sort of an all-encompassing statewide approach. What New York did was they looked to the Lawrence, Massachusetts model and implemented a state receivership program whereby the state would designate schools that have failed. And if they continued to fail, then the state had the opportunity to appoint an independent receiver to go in and fix those schools, not necessarily against their will, um, but it was a way to sort of force the change.
0: What kind of reception did that receive by the schools?
2: The boldness of New York State's receivership program got a lot of opposition. It got a lot of pushback from institutions, establishment, that really wanted things to stay largely as they were. Part of the problem is when you're looking at some of the transformations that have to occur, for example, choosing the right staff, that means looking to transform existing collective bargaining requirements. The local teachers unions that have negotiated those in good faith rightly have concerns about whether those are going to be upended if you're going to go look to replace staff. Um, If you put in an all-powerful new principal, how is that going to change the school day, the the work conditions? So I think there was uh, uh, some reasonable pushback. But one of the things we saw in Lawrence, Massachusetts, for example, was when this bold receiver went in and started making changes, they encountered similar opposition. But over the course of a couple of years, everybody understood, because of the public transparency, because of the general acceptance of the need for change, that this change was going to move forward. That brought everybody to the same table, and collective bargaining agreements, new ones, included the flexibility and requirements for performance uh, needed to improve this district. All of those were negotiated. So it was sort of evidence that no matter what the political environment you have, if people are willing to institute the changes that are necessary, it can happen and you can make it happen. It just needs the strong leadership that's required.
0: So for New York, have there been any
2: results? New York has changed its definition too many times um, and we've seen the classification of failing schools and struggling schools and persistently struggling schools change and be modified in a way that I don't think has been particularly helpful. The timeframes allowed for change, uh, the ability to close schools, to exempt them from this accountability approach, has really served in some ways to undermine the overall effort of needing to improve these schools. And the end result that we have here in New York is that even since the institution of its receivership program, not a single school has fallen under independent receivership anywhere in the state.
0: So I've seen in recent years the popularity in charter schools are growing. Do they have a role to play in this receivership model?
2: The Federal School Improvement Grant Program specifically allowed charter school takeover as one of the options. It was very rarely used, and I think it was very rarely used for a couple of different reasons. Uh, First, state laws governing charter schools vary from state to state. So a federal prescription doesn't necessarily work in any given state. But here in New York, one of the requirements of our public charter school law is that if you convert a public school, failing or not, to charter school status, you have to accept the staff that's there, the local collective bargaining agreement that's there, and many charter operators simply find it an awful lot easier just to start from scratch. And I think that's what we've seen in the turnaround movement for failing schools, too. Charter entities have been approached saying would you please take over this failing school and more often than not they say no Uh, it's easier to wait until a locality closes a failing school and then they'll open up their own version of a local public school the problem with that model of course is that not all of those kids who are affected by the school closure are guaranteed to be enrolled Also, new public charter schools often don't open up at the same grade configuration of a local closed public school. Sometimes they'll grow slowly, adding a grade level a year, so they can't accommodate everybody. So I don't think the two really match up very well. And while I think the charters could play a significant role in the school turnaround movement, they haven't chosen to to date.
0: So really, when we're looking to try to improve school performance, we want to keep students and families and the priority, want to keep their daily lives from changing too much.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things we've seen with sort of the rash of school closures is how disruptive it is, and that's one of the the great appeals of school turnaround models is if we can keep parents' and students' lives generally calmer, um, less disrupted by simply going in and fixing our own institutions, why shouldn't we choose to do that rather than disrupt the lives of parents and their children?
0: even though we just found out that it's the overhaul models that typically yield the best results.
2: The overhaul models, when we're looking to do bold transformations, that doesn't necessarily change what school your child goes to, I should say. It might change the start time. It might change the end time because you're adding more school hours. It might change what is expected of your student. What might change what's expected of you as a parent. But it doesn't really affect the daily life of where you're sending your child to school, when you put the child on the school bus, or those elements. If a district comes in and closes your neighborhood school and says your only option is one across town, that's a fairly significant disruption. And I think that's the difference that we get into if we're talking about fixing failing schools versus closing failing schools and opening up a new one.
0: So. With the school improvement grant costing almost $6.3 billion and producing little results, was all that money and effort wasted?
2: I don't think so. I think one of the things that this grand effort, I wouldn't even call it an experiment, but this grand effort has done is it's given us a lot of lessons learned. There are places where you've seen some successes. Um, There are places where bold reforms have been tried and worked, and there are places where We've seen these incremental changes that simply fail to take hold and leave the school exactly where it was before or sometimes even worse off. And I think those lessons learned provide a wonderful opportunity for us to change our entire approach towards school transformation models and towards the funding of those models. We know what some of the things that works. We know some of the things that are required for a school turnaround effort to work and that's what we should be looking to fund.
0: What are some of those things that work?
2: Well, I think we have really three buckets, if you will, of the types of characteristics that are necessary in school turnaround plan to be successful. The first is environmental, the second is content, and the third is strategic. As far as environmental conditions that are necessary, the first and foremost is there has to be sufficient political will to make the changes necessary. There's a lot of people who don't want to upset the apple cart, who want to see the um, educational establishment stay largely how it is. That transformation and, and the overhauls necessary are hard to do. The leaders willing to make the changes that are necessary need and deserve the political support at every level, and that's at the state level from the highest ranks to the district level from the district superintendent and from parents quite frankly. There needs to be sufficient political will if any of these attempts are going to succeed. The second is each school needs its independence to act. The problems at these failing schools are very different from school to school. And as long as you have an empowered school leader who is willing to make the changes, you need to give that school the flexibility to make the changes in the priority that they see Are necessary now district structures can surely provide support um, as far as back office support or even moral or curricular support as needed but they really sort of need to stay out of the way and let these schools trying to change to do the changes that they need and I guess the third environmental condition I would say is it makes sense to have them be schools of choice you shouldn't force parents to be part of the experiment with their child and improving the school. Come out, say how you're going to improve the school, say the bold changes you're going to make, and ensure that the parents are part of the solution here by buying into that change, saying, yes, everything you're doing sounds good to me. I'll have my child be part of this effort. I think those really have to be in place to have a longstanding, successful effort. As far as content, I I don't think there's anything more important than having the right school leader. Strong leadership, clear leader, uh, a bold leader who is willing to make the changes necessary and can achieve the buy-in from all the staff to make this. New York City's experiment with its renewal schools program even found this out, too. They said that one of the hardest things they they encountered was finding... uh, enough strong leaders to run their turnaround school models and i think that's really quite critical every successful school turnaround effort we have seen has been under the leadership of somebody bold and somebody supported and somebody with a clear vision of how to change things Uh, you have to have the ability to have the right staff everyone in that building needs to be bought into the effort you have to have assessment that is fairly continuous, but not just for the sake of testing, it has to be tied directly to student achievement and how to inform instruction. And every bit of your focus needs to be on improving instruction, including from that data. As far as strategic components that I think are are important, you have to design your plan for some early wins. It might sound sort of trivial. But I think part of the objective here is is to sustain the political will, to sustain the parental buy-in, you have to be able to achieve some sort of successes early on in the effort. Whether that's simply grabbing a hold of the school culture and changing it into what parents have wanted to see, um, reducing violence, reducing absenteeism, something like that, that gives you the early critical wins, the improvement in academic performance might come a little more slowly, but you need to have uh, something new and something obvious that everybody can buy into, that yes, there's something good happening at that school. And I think you need to be completely transparent to the public, to the parents, to the local lawmakers, to the teachers, to other leaders in your district. Everybody needs to know what's going on. It can't be cloaked in some veil of secrecy. And one of the things that does is lets everybody know that you're trying, um, know how hard you're trying, and know what you're trying. And I think that these are the elements that all should be required of any school turnaround plan. It's what we've seen work, and it's what we've seen if they're missing, causes efforts to fail.
0: So in your report, you know, those four prescriptions: the transformation, turnaround, restart, and school closure models. You see that. school closures, less than 1% of schools opt to go that route. What makes it so challenging to opt for the school closure?
2: Well, I don't know that school closure is always the proper course to take. In fact, one of the things that I think is incumbent upon any policymaker who's deciding to close a public school, even if it's been persistently failing for years, is to make sure that every single school child in that building has a better school to go to. And I think that's too often overlooked. They want to get the school off the accountability list and so they just close it and it no longer appears as a failing school. Too often schools are closed without creating a better opportunity for the school children who are affected by those closures. You have to ensure that there is a better school that every single child can enroll in if you're going to close a failing public school. Those really are your choices provide a better opportunity for the child or improve that school. And I think that one of the things that we've seen through the history of the school improvement grant program and a lot of research evaluations have shown that is that schools, districts and education leaders in the states not opting for the radical change that's necessary has resulted in minimal, if any change at all. And we need to improve these schools and we need to improve them rapidly.
0: You can read more of Brian's report on our website at www.rockinst.org. That's rockinst.org. Brian, thank you for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about this. I'd like to say
0: thanks again to Kyle Adams for helping spearhead this podcast and all the work that was put into it. Good luck in your next stop. And thanks to Brian Backstrom for taking the time to provide valuable insight into the role both the community and decision makers have in shaping and improving our schools. I'd also like to thank our new producer, Trevor Kraft, research assistant at the Rockefeller Institute and former Center for Law and Policy Solutions intern at the Institute as well. Trevor will be helping with everything podcast from preparing materials for interviews to recording and editing. I'm looking forward to what Trevor will bring to the table. And as always, you can find Brian's research and more at rockinst.org. That's R O C K I N S T dot O R G. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Rockefeller inst. That's Rockefeller, I-N-S-T. I'm Alex Morse. Until next time.
1: Policy Outsider is presented by the Rockefeller Institute of Government the public policy research arm of the State University of New York. The Institute conducts cutting-edge, nonpartisan public policy research and analysis to inform lasting solutions to the challenges facing New York State and the nation. Learn more at rockinst.org or by following at Rockefellerinst, that's at Rockefellerinst, on social media. Have a question, comment, or idea? Email us at communications at rock.suny.edu. That's rock, R-O-C-K dot suny, S-U-N-Y, dot E-D-U.